Welcome to Without the Footnotes, not your typical Holocaust lecture, with me, your host, Esther Rini. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about what happened after the Holocaust. Hi friends, and welcome to the 10th and final episode of this series of Without the Footnotes, not your typical Holocaust lecture. Um, this week, I have a guest on to guest on again it's Lindsay who was on a previous episode and we are going to be talking about what happened post holocaust so I'm just going to keep the intro short and sweet because we actually talk for about half an hour so um yeah it's that weird week between Christmas and New Year I hope everybody had a great Christmas or holidays whatever you celebrated and um yeah hope everybody's like recovering and resting nicely and the lead up to New Year's Eve. But yeah, I won't, I won't, as I said, I won't keep talking. Um, we'll just jump straight into the episode. So let's crack on. So on this week's episode, I just want to explain a bit about what happened after the Holocaust, as I think perhaps it's quite easy to overlook um, what happened at the end of World War II, as it can seem that that because the Nazis had been defeated or because they surrendered, that then all the suffering kind of ended and everybody goes back to normal. However, um, one thing about genocide is that when you dehumanise and persecute an entire group of people, especially for so long, so um, if we think about when Hitler first came to power in 1933, and then the end of World War II is 1945, that's a really long time to be persecuting people and kind of... um, uh, like fueling anti-Jewish sentiment between it, uh, amongst civilians. So it's going to take some reconciliation process to get back to a sense of normalcy. So at the end of World War II, we obviously now have a lot of displaced people. And of course, there are many Jewish people who survived the Holocaust who now found themselves um, actually living in dispa- displaced persons person camps um, for many years after the war and this would be for many different reasons because they quite literally had nowhere to go back to so if you think of the destruction of war and you know your home may actually just be destroyed um, the fear of returning back to where they're from because of this like anti-Jewish sentiment that still exists and also uh, post-war violence so Lindsay given like all of those factors that I've just mentioned, what do you kind of know about the post-war, like what was going on post-World War II for Jewish people at this time? Sure. So first of all, thanks again for for having me on. Um, The post-war years, at least in those first five years, immediately following the end of the uh, the Second World War, seemed to be this kind of balagan or this kind of uh, really confusing time for a lot of survivors of the war, especially Jewish Holocaust survivors. Um, Oftentimes, if they were liberated from a camp itself, which we know many were not necessarily liberated from a camp, but if they were, Mm -hmm. they were put into DP camps, which were pretty much built right inside of the camps that they were already prisoners at, which is, can only imagine would be an incredibly bizarre feeling to then be occupied or to be governed or helped by the allies, whether they're the British or the the Americans or the Russians, but 
figuring out or we're still living kind of in the same place. Yeah, because I know that there was one at Bergen-Belsen, which from the liberation stuff that I've seen or I know about Bergen-Belsen was that it was really, really awful at the end of the war, like in because mm. some of the death marches came into there. So I should, I would just, to me, that would just be really traumatizing to have to then stay there or end up there because you've got nowhere else to go. It's right. Yeah. Traumatizing, uh, to, uh, to say the least, I think. And I think um, from from what I've learned and what I've read about this um, is that it was just confusing on, on a, an incredibly personal level, right? You go through this terribly traumatic time for years and years and years. Um, statistically, most Jews uh, were the only survivors of their, infam- uh, their entire families. It was very rare for multiple members of a family to survive the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So if you came out of it, you came out of being starved and tortured and in really horrible conditions for years. And then you have to figure out what am I going to do now? Where do I go? And, you know, we can all think about that personally, what we might have, how we might've responded to that. What do you do? What's your first step? The country that you used to be a citizen of before your citizenship was revoked either doesn't exist anymore or the borders have changed or you're in a totally different part of the world and you have no idea really where to start. So there's a lot of confusion about what to do. Yeah, because imagine you're actually from, I don't know, imagine you're actually from Berlin, but you've ended up close to Russia. Like logistic, right. like logistically, how do you move across Europe and where are you going? You don't, and you're doing, potentially you're doing it on your own. You're doing it on your own. You might be a very young person if you survived, maybe mm-hmm. you might be 13 years old or something like that. You don't speak different languages. You can't understand what's going on. And it's not like, the Eurorail is really working fantastically. Like rail lines have been bombed. You have no way of traveling. So you have to figure out, okay, like what's my, my next step. You also don't know if any other of your family members or your other neighbors or friends <clears throat> or community members survived because there's no way of getting in, in contact with them. Right. So you immediately want to figure out where am I and how do I get in touch with any family members that still might be around. So we see in this time in Europe and later in, uh, in Israel as well, a lot of um, networks of people trying to get in touch with one another Mm -hmm. in Europe. It was, uh, it was some, uh, it was orchestrated by uh, Jewish foundations also in the British mandate of Palestine slash Israel, right. Depending on which year we're talking about, Israel was only founded in 1948. We see uh, like a lot of radio programs, where on a certain hour every day, people would yes, call I in. know about this. Yeah, it's yeah. um, it, it's pretty incredible, right? If we're thinking about nobody had social media, nobody had smartphones or telephones at all in their homes. They were trying to figure out where is a certain family member, so they would call in or they would put in requests. And every hour, every day at a certain time, they would read off a list of requests saying, okay, this person in Tel Aviv is looking for any remaining family members. They're originally from Berlin. Mm-hmm. Please get in touch with us if you know who this person is. Yeah. And people did this for years and years and years. And sometimes it took a decade to find siblings or, or friends or something like that. Yeah, that they could cousins, have and cousins of cousins or someone that they they used to know um and I also know that the the Red Cross as well they had a whole network I think they just basically used to put lists of names up in these camps and just to see if anybody knew anybody and could get especially like for children who had been hidden so if you you think about all 
all the people that would have gone into hiding or, or children that would have been given away to I mean I've heard stories about like children that are given away to nunneries and stuff like that and then them trying to find their family members post-war but often the children are very young so they they can't tell you anything they, right. because they, they just might not know. know what their birth name was yeah they have no idea and, they, and they're usually raised in like christian households so they have no idea that they're actually jewish right so yeah, yeah. And i think one thing that really um like when i've looked into like kind of what's happened post holocaust i think one thing that was actually shocking and i don't know why because it seems actually quite lo logical was the violence that was continued and yeah. the fact that jewish people could go through like so much during this period survive it and then potentially come back to their hometown for some sense of safety and security and then have more violence perpetrated against them by the civilians living in the place and I know I've been to, I don't, I can't say, I don't know if I can pr pronounce it. It begins with K, it's in Poland. Helse? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're better Is at that it? than I am. <laughs> you figure out how to say it correctly. But I've actually been there and um, that was one of the most violent pogroms that happened for returning Jews. I think it's 42 people were killed. Yeah. Which is... Which is crazy to it, me to think of what people went through and then they could still end up dead, essentially. Right. So like for, I mean, we're talking about Poland and a lot, and I think for a good reason, because Poland had the largest Jewish uh, concentration of Jews living before the war and also a good amount of people that survived um, the war. And you had many people who had no desire whatsoever to return home because of clear trauma of what had happened in their home cities or their hometowns mm -hmm. were knowing that they didn't have anything left to go to. So they wanted to leave to the United States or to, to Argentina or to the, um, the British mandate of Palestine slash Israel. Um, but for those people who did decide we want to stay here, we want to go back to our homes to see what there is. They weren't really welcomed back as, wow, this is really great. You survived. Welcome back. We really missed you. Mm -hmm. They were oftentimes welcomed back and their neighbors said, well, we thought you were gone. So we took your farm and we took your home and we took your belongings and it's ours now. Yeah. And there was no kind of legal body, right? The governments had all basically collapsed. Um, there was nothing giving them any rights back to this property that they, that they, um, they might not get back for decades later or after that generation had passed away and their children tried to reclaim some of the property. Yeah. What you're talking about is, is really the most terrifying and one of the most well-known programs that happened after the war, I think July 4th, 1946. So a year after the war ends, um, there's a story, uh, there's a rumor of blood libel. There's a rumor that a Polish uh, non-Jewish boy had been kidnapped by the Jews living in the town of Kielce, which had a pretty significant Jewish population before the war. Survivors had returned. Many of the survivors were survivors of Auschwitz. They returned. They started living their lives again. And the rumor is that the boy Wright was kidnapped. And but he was just hiding, wasn't he, or something? He was hiding in someone's yeah. basement or something. Exactly. He was hiding in a basement. He was not kidnapped. He was not harmed whatsoever. But mm. um, he, it wasn't by the fault of the Jewish community, definitely not. And over the course of, of a couple of days, the Polish police and just residents of the town or family members of, of the boy mm. um, murdered, right, like you're saying, 
40 people, murder them. And this is really murdering people that they knew. It wasn't shooting them from really far away. It was pretty, uh, pretty uh, yeah, really violent. Intimate, intimate, violent killing within your exactly. community. Exactly. And you can imagine the people who were doing the killing were people who knew these their neighbors for years and years and years before the war. These were not strangers to them. So they did this and, and it was a lot of pent up uh, anger or resentment or whatever it was. So after Kelze in 1946, we see a lot of Jews who had returned to their homes, saw that, took the message and said, we tried to make it work here. We don't want to stay in Poland or Romania or Ukraine or wherever that might be. We're leaving. We're trying to get out of here, whatever that might be too. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have a huge lack of op- opportunity to actually immigrate to different countries. So obviously, because of the end of World War Two, it's not only Jewish people that are displaced. You had millions of other um, displaced civilians and obviously towns and cities and everything destroyed. So there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to be done. But what you see is initially at the beginning, countries have, you know, their, their, bo- their borders are closed. They're not taking in people. And I think it's not until I, th- I think there was some Jewish immigration to America, maybe in 1946. Is it 46? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, small numbers, but yeah. Small numbers, yeah. But um, but then not until 1948, really, do you see like big change kind of happening? And the U.S. What was it called? Uh, oh gosh. I can't remember the name of it, but they they allow, uh, I think it's up to 400,000 people to immigrate. Oh, the quota system? Yeah, like they they, they basically say, okay, we're, we're going to allow this many visas for people to come right. to the USA. Um, Displaced Persons Act. So they actually established mm. that. And then also up until 1948 um, with immigration to Palestine, Britain had been blocking that and it didn't mean that people didn't attempt to like to immigrate to Palestine but it wasn't until the establishment of Israel that then you see a mass uh, immigration start to happen. Yeah exactly it's it's like whenever we're thinking about this I always have to remind myself to reframe the the mindset to think okay it's not something that's happening in 2020 it's something that was happening 60 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, borders were not really open. You could just freely walk to different places or move to, not that you can really do that now, I guess, but, but travel was not in the same sense that it is, uh, that it is now, obviously, um, this is still an issue around the world of refugees of where do they go to and, and borders being open and being closed. And we see this also in the post, uh, second world war. And it really, I think highlights this, this, um, plight of refugees of figuring out where's a safe place to move to and where can we get citizenship or where can we even yeah. enter into right so because fun fact the refugee refugee convention was um like only came to fruition because of this crisis that happened post-world war ii and that comes into law in 1951 and the original convention basically says anybody has the right to go anywhere if they need safety and they kind of like, they readjust that a little bit um, in the 60s, I think it was. But mm-hmm. it basically is a convention that says like, if you if you fear for your life, then you, uh, then cu- countries have to offer you refuge with them. 
And that is because it literally Europe was in such turmoil turmoil and people needed places of safety. They needed to go to different countries. Right. I mean, it, it's, uh, so it's, uh, unfortunately we see this happening in different, in other parts of the world, the same thing today, right? Mm-hmm. People not having access to get to a, to a safe place. So they're forced yeah. to stay in a country that could be quite dangerous for them. Um, so you have, I mean, it's happening today, but going back, uh, going back to the, to, right after the Holocaust, right, you have Jews also figuring out where can we really get into. Mm-hmm. You had options to go to the United States or to Canada or other parts of South America also. Um, South Africa, Australia. Right. South Africa, Australia, England also. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and like you're saying, Palestine or, or Israel, depending on the year, um, that were, that were, those were places that they were looking at. Um, but we also see uh, a lot of Jewish Holocaust survivors who had fled to the Far East, who had fled to uh, parts of Russia, mm-hmm. parts of the Soviet Union during uh, during the war, which is a majority of, of the way that many Holocaust survivors survived, not necessarily surviving through the camps or surviving in hiding, but surviving because they fled mm-hmm. to, uh, to other parts of Central and Eastern Asia. Um, they're now falling underneath a communist regime, which happened within a matter of years at the end of the Second World War. These countries fell within uh, the Soviet Union, and now they're being taken from these places that they're living in, and instead of being returned back to Berlin or back to Warsaw or back to Kiev, wherever they might have come from originally, they're being repatriated to other parts of of the Soviet Union in in an attempt to kind of fill up the population. So they might have been pushed to these cities that they had never been to and said, well, you're living here now and this isn't your new home. So get used to it. Mm -hmm. And we know of course in the Soviet union, there was no real option to leave or there was no real option to say, Hey, I would like to leave to go to America. And their door wasn't really open for them. Right. Yeah. So we see a lot of these towns in, um, in Western Poland, one for um, in particular is Szczecin, which also took me a very long time to figure out how to say that, uh, say that name is is known for having a huge concentration of Holocaust survivors who had fled to the to to parts of Russia during the war, mm-hmm. and then were repatriated to uh, to other parts of uh, of the West. Oh, okay, that's I didn't know about that. I didn't know that um, people would literally be moved. Um, yeah, but yeah, like what is kind of also mind blowing to me is the fact that even if Hitler didn't achieve basically murdering everybody he did achieve decimating European jury jury in in the sense of like the communities and like where they ended up because you have a lot of people wanting to actually leave Europe altogether so like this once like really rich like Jewish culture and life and all these communities that we had in Europe just don't exist anymore Exactly. And places like, right, exactly. In in a lot of these countries, Jews have been living there for a thousand years, literally since some of these countries became Christian nations. Yeah. Jews also had moved at the same time. I mean, they were, they were there for centuries and, and for generations and had established a really rich culture. And I, I cannot imagine how that must have felt to be returning to back to your hometown to see the synagogue that you would go to pray at with your family members or to see these other landmarks that have been there for hundreds of years and see them completely destroyed and know that this is really the end of the culture that you grew up in. And so did your grandparents and great grandparents and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. You know, I I can't even imagine what that must feel like. There's a picture 
um, in a museum in Warsaw that I always was really gravitated towards. And it's all about the post-war years. And it's always um, this really, really haunting photograph. And it's of a young boy standing in front of a cart, like this kind of horse cart, horse-drawn cart. It has a lot of rubble and and garbage and stuff. But on top are tourist scrolls that have been, um, like the parchment has been really crumbled up. It looks like something that you would just throw away. And and the look on the face of this this, um, boy is, is really haunting and you can only imagine what they're thinking you're they're thinking this is it yeah it's over right because if you think about like this is not me making a comparison but like think about culturally the devastation when Notre Dame set on fire and Mm. everyone was like we have to pump all this money into it we have to restore it we have to get it back you know and then you have that basically thousands of years of history of a people it's just destroyed and gone and then, you know, you could, you're from Poland, but you've ended up living in South Africa. Yeah. And you figure out, all right, well, guess we just have to keep on going. Yeah, guess I'm South African. Now. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like if right. someone said to me, like as coming from the UK, I don't know, some huge event happens and then I just suddenly end up living in Argentina and then that's just it. That's now where my children will be born and their children. And then like now it just completely, like just completely changing like your, your legacy, like through no, you didn't actually like want to. It's, it's, I think I hope for most of the, for us and for most of the people listening, I hope this is something that we never have to experience, but it's, it sounds horrible. And, one thing also when we're thinking about this like post-war years is, is not what happens physically, of course, what happens physically, right? Okay. We're free of diseases. We're regaining the weight that, that, um, you know, we lost when we were starved for years in the, in the camps or in, or in the ghettos or in hiding and things like this. Okay. Like physically returning to somewhat a sense of normal health, even though the health problems continued for decades after survivors were liberated, mm-hmm. but also the mental health and the mental status of people like this. I mean, I think a lot of research and, and studies have been done recently, let's say in the last 10 or 15 years, but mm-hmm. immediately afterwards, it wasn't really anything that people talked about. Yeah, no. So th- Interestingly, um, if we talk about Israel and survivors immigrating to Israel and how there was a lot of shame around surviving the Holocaust, which sounds like a really um, strange concept, but people kind of being accusatory and being like, how could you let this happen to you? Yeah, right. And then the years of silence up until the Eichmann trial, when it all kind of comes to light about what these people had actually experienced. And then you see this huge shift in attitude towards survivors. And now even to this day, they're kind of like revered in Israel as, I don't know, how how would you describe it? It's, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, uh, you have Israel, which uh, for anybody who's maybe not as familiar with, um, kind of this like uh, Israeli history or a history of, of Jews uh, in Palestine also in the years leading up to 1948 when the state was declared is this like really strong mentality, this mentality that we are strong, we fight back, we are really, um, we're self-sufficient, we work outside in, in the land, we're not somebody that gets taken advantage of. And so you have afterwards 
these like waves of, of Holocaust survivors coming to Israel, many of whom went to, on to go fight in the War of Independence here, but also they came with these stories, these really horrific stories and these tattoos on their arms and nobody here really understood what they had gone through. I mean, nobody can really understand that. And once they started to say something about it, they were immediately shushed and said, shh, the war is over, we're here now, we have to focus on the future, keep on going. You let this happen to you, Either right, either you let this happen to you or you must have done something really terrible in the camp. You must have stolen food from somebody or something like that in order to survive. Mm-hmm. We don't want to hear about it. Yeah. And they said, okay. I mean, I think, right. I think about my own grandparents. My grandparents were not Holocaust survivors or anything like that, but this, that generation of being, of holding things in or kind of being tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of us, regardless of our background, know that generation from, from 60 or 70 years ago. Yeah. Of, uh, you, you know, very uh stiff up a uh, lip that's what it is in England anyway just kind of carry on exactly exactly and so they have the same mentality okay we're going on and uh and yeah we have to we have to keep going that doesn't mean that they weren't traumatized or had night terrors or had really severe uh psychological uh issues after that but they just kept it in until the Eichmann trials in 1960, 1961, when Adolf Eichmann was uh, captured by the Mossad in Argentina, mm-hmm. secretly brought to Israel and put on trial. Um, and it was a really uh, extensive trial mm-hmm. where hundreds of Holocaust survivors um, shared their stories. And it's really kind of this yeah. like landmark where it's like the first time that people really spoke openly about it and shared these stories. And you can uh, watch some of those testimonies on YouTube, I think, and they're really quite powerful. I mean, some people are, are, um, they're talking and one of these guys, he, uh, he calls himself Kadzetnik. That's his like, cause he wrote some books. Mm-hmm. He actually faints, I think when he's giving his testimony, mm-hmm. um, then you also have uh, like just people who are listening who just are like they just start shouting because everything mm. they're hearing is so like awful, absolutely awful. So, yeah, if you're interested, you can go on YouTube, I think, and watch some of the testimonies that happen um, during that trial. Right. It's uh, they're, they're really emotional and they're really uh, important in the study of what uh, the process of of rehabilitation for some people. Nobody was like really rehabilitated after that. They didn't say, okay, that's it. Eichmann has been executed. Eichmann, uh, Adolf Eichmann actually is the only person that Israel has ever used the death penalty on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in 1961. So, but like after that, it wasn't like everything was okay now. Okay, now we can all go to sleep soundly and know that justice has been served. But it was one of those places where, okay, now we can start to talk about it. But yeah. still also in other communities in the United States, in other parts of Europe, um, in South South Africa and Australia, people still held these secrets in very closely and sometimes didn't tell their family members until, until after they had, uh, or until they were about to pass away. We're also looking at the numbers are not nearly as large, but also Jews who re- remained in other parts of Central and Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. whether by choice or because they had no options to leave, places like Ukraine and Poland, Romania, Russia, um, and other parts of Germany also where you have survivors who returned home and, and stayed there and, and their descendants and their children and families still live there today. They are what makes up a big part of the Jewish population of, of these parts of Europe. They also didn't speak a lot of, uh, about what happened. Yeah. And then you have a whole different ball game. It probably needs a whole 
its own episode of what happens to perpetrators and bystanders and like all of that kind of thing where it's obviously a lot of people were put on trial um for crimes during this time but i think the the most infamous is the nuremberg trials but Mm. even then they only try was it 20 wasn't a huge number it wasn't even like a drop in the bucket no um i'm not i'm not not so clued up on like the post-war trials and stuff like that but what i do know is that um it was only a few of like not only a few nazi officials that were tried and some of them commit suicide before they even get sentenced others were were um hung um and some of them even just got like 20 years in prison and that's that and then they come out and they go about that's why you see today um you might see in the news like some really really old man is now being put on trials for crimes mm-hmm. committed during the holocaust um right. and yeah that's a whole i think that's a whole different episode to be talking about that kind of thing getting everybody excited for season two yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a little advertisement in there stay tuned right uh, we'll, we'll get to it eventually i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure um, but right, there's there's a ton to, to think about, and um, I think uh, it, it is quite fascinating. Like we, at least in America, we think about the end of the Second World War. We see that like picture of the sailor kissing the girl in Times Square, and we think about this really exciting, jubilant time. And wow, the war is over. This is so exciting. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you have millions of people whose lives have been completely destroyed. Right. And they have to figure out what do we do now. And then that generational trauma that that creates, because like I feel like in the UK, because we never actually fought on UK soil, even though, mm-hmm. you know, London got blitzed and all of that stuff and there was damage, definitely, but we didn't have the, um, it was very different to mainland Europe, which, you know, you just have millions of people that have got nowhere to go. <laughs> and, and, and uh, yeah. It's a lot. So I think uh, it's not uh, necessarily comparing the Holocaust to other situations that are happening in the world, because I think every historical event or, or modern event has its own complexities and it's not mm-hmm. uh, com- comparable, but it, I think can help us at least um, have more empathy towards people that are suffering or, or in that group of refugees trying to figure out what are they supposed to do now with their yeah. lives. It's definitely about understanding that like, aftermath is just as important as you know preventing like events like these or even doing something whilst the event is happening like the aftermath causes as much or can cause as much damage to people and their lives and what happens next is very very important definitely and and the last in the the kind of leading up until today it's uh you have a lot of people were either grandchildren of survivors or relatives of survivors or even things like this, you know, they're, they're trying to go back to parts of central Eastern Europe where the Holocaust happened and also where their families are from. And there's, there's no real sense of closure because there's not much to go back to and to kind of trace somebody's uh, trace their roots. So, uh, right. You can't even go back to like a cemetery or some kind of graveyard, or if you are maybe going to a graveyard, you're in a camp and it's, yeah. And then it's that, that whole thing but yeah well I think that gives a slight not to bum you out but I think that gives kind of like an overview of uh of kind of 
touching on what what happened post Holocaust and um, yeah, giving me maybe a lot of a lot of leads for like different episodes to maybe touch more in depth on different things because I do find um, this kind of like. 20 year silence or whatever it was I find that really fascinating because everybody you know there's footage of liberation of the camps yet there's this whole site like this whole back off of let's never speak of it right so yeah well thank you for coming on again today on the last episode of this series uh, yeah thank you so much for having me I feel very honored to, to be on the last episode I'm really excited uh for season two Season two, and I'm sure you'll be back to give your expertise on something else. I'd be happy to. <laughs> All right, I'll see you soon. Bye. So there you have it, everyone. That's the final episode of this series. Um, I've hope I hope that you've enjoyed it. My recommended reading for this week would actually be, and um, this is actually two separate books, but you can buy them both together. And it's If This Is A Man and The Truth by Primo Levi. So um, Primo Levi was a Jewish Italian man who was um, actually incarcerated in Auschwitz. And If This Is A Man actually describes his experiences of the liberation and kind of documenting like his experiences at Auschwitz and the liberation and then the truth is a story about his journey home so I think I mean he's a very he's a highly revered um survivor of the holocaust just because of the way that he can he has kind of looked at humanity and retold his experiences and like his kind of like thinkings on um the Holocaust and the human experience so I would highly recommend that book as I said you can buy both books together and yeah I just think it's very apt for the episode to actually read somebody's journey from liberation home um yeah really interesting so that is the recommended reading um my call to action would be to maybe have a look on YouTube at the Eichmann trials and have a look, little look at some of the testimony that was presented in the trials if you're curious about that. Um, or even if you're curious about law and how um, how to persecute um, perpetrators of genocide or how that was done in the 60s anyway. Um, yeah, there's footage on there that you can take a look at. And yeah, that's it. It's been... Um, I feel like it's been a really good series of episodes. Um, I've really enjoyed recording them and having people on to, to speak. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them. As ever, please contact me with any, um, any topics that you're interested in me covering. And uh, yeah, I'll be happy to hear from you either via Instagram at without the footnotes or my email address, which is info at without the footnotes.org. Please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends and I shall see you in the new year with a new series and new episodes. So have a good one. Happy New Year and speak soon. Ciao.